All right, I've kind of gotten in the habit of reading a little bit of the New Testament because, you know, we're, we're here we are in the book of uh, uh, Genesis, and if we don't read the New Testament each week a little bit of it, we won't be to it until probably the year 2057 or something. And uh, so rather than jumping around the way that I have, I'm just going to start with Romans 1, go down just 17 verses of Romans 1 today, and then uh, in the future I'll just start from that point each week and I'll read a little bit of the New Testament. And I'm not going to get into any deep study or anything, but it's just something so we can hear the New Testament and so that we can uh, appreciate what the Lord is telling us in the new which was concealed in the old. So we'll start with Paul's uh, uh, book to the Romans, and we're in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A bondservant is a person that is works without pay. It's generally termed a slave. So he's saying, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm a person that works uh, because he is my master. And he's making that known from the very first words of his first epistle. Uh, called to be an apostle, separated to to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, one thing we need to remember as we're reading the New Testament is to always consider when it speaks about the Scriptures, it's speaking about the Old Testament, because there was new, new, no New Testament. None of these people knew which books or if any of their letters would be included in the Bible at this time. So he's referring to the Old Testament, and we can find Jesus Christ all through it. What is concealed, though, in the old is revealed in the new from the hands of the apostles, um, which he promised uh, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. So he's saying that Jesus Christ is a human being. He came through the line of David, as is promised in the book of uh, 2 Samuel. Um, we, we see that promise. And verse 4 says, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is fully man, but he is also fully God. And Paul makes, he establishes that right from the beginning of his epistle. So we don't need to fall into error like the Jehovah's Witnesses and decide that Jesus Christ is somehow a created being. He is not. He is fully God and he is fully man. And this is the purpose of what Paul is saying here. And he was uh, declared this uh, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead is what confirms Jesus Christ as having lived a sinless life. It is what confirms that he is the God-man because man inherits Adam's sin. That's what happens is we inherit Adam's sin. And so by saying that he is resurrected from the dead and this confirms who he is it's saying that he is fully god so we don't need to make that error he is fully man and fully god verse 5 through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations for his name among whom you also are the called of jesus christ verse 7 to all who are in rome beloved of god called to be saints grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ first i thank my god through jesus christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if, by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. I'll stop there real quickly and say that Paul speaks about prayers throughout all of his epistles. And people are always wondering, do prayers work? Well, I assure you, Paul believed that prayers worked. That's why he says it again and again and again throughout his epistles. So 
uh, it, it, don't ever feel afraid to just whisper a prayer to God at any moment of the day for somebody that's struggling, for somebody that's having trials. God is right there, and he is listening to every prayer that you utter on behalf of somebody else or even on behalf of yourself. Making requests, if by some means, now at last I might find, might find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. So he's looking not only to encourage them, but he's also looking for encouragement himself. And this is what we do. This is why we fellowship with each other, is to build each other up. And I can tell you throughout the week, I'm uh, emailing one of you or posting to one of you, and all we're doing is we're trying to build each other up. We're encouraging each other. And hopefully we do that more in a Christian context than in a non-Christian context. But I think poke is probably pretty neutral. When you're on Facebook and you poke somebody, it doesn't mean I'm doing this, you know, this isn't a poke, a holy poke from the Lord, like a holy kiss in the uh, whichever book of the Bible. But in other words, be there for each other, encourage each other, and fellowship with each other. And that's what Paul is saying to the people of Rome. Verse 13, now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, and he quotes Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And that's one thing I brought up in every single sermon. I'll bring it up today in every sermon as long as I live, that the key to God's heart is faith. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in detail today. But there is nothing else that we can give God because he created everything. Everything came from him. And so all he wants is us to exercise faith that what he says is true. And this is where he says it, right here in the pages of the Holy Bible. So that's our uh, New Testament reading for today. And now we have Psalm 8. And we can get Cena to read that, and then uh, we'll get into the sermon. Okay, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Amen. Thank you, thank you. Let me put this down, and uh, we'll get started into today's sermon. Uh, what we have today is we're going to be speaking from Genesis, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. And I entitled this, This Land I Give to You. Now, before we go into the sermon, you know, every week I love to give you a little bit of history of what occurred on this day in history. In 1776, the Continental Congress of the United States of America appointed a committee to 
write a declaration of independence. And as we know, just a little bit more than a month later, they published the uh, Declaration of Independence, they signed it, and that actually was the founding of the nation. Those men put their lives on the line by signing that document. But also, at the same time, by signing that document, they are saying we are no longer members of the British Empire, we are members of this government. So even though they're taking their lives into jeopardy in one way, they're securing them in another way. So it's kind of an interesting way that nations divide and how people uh, work things out. But uh, next we have in 1925, the state of Tennessee adopted a new biology textbook that denied the theory of evolution. And rightly so, because the theory of evolution to this day, which is what 75, uh, 85 years later, is still a theory. It's not a fact. There is no proof for evolution. There's not a single bone in anywhere in the world to substantiate evolution. It remains a theory. And as a matter of fact, if anybody ever has a question about how can I determine if uh, the Bible is true, you know, uh, with the age of rocks and all of these things, I can give you an explanation for every single thing that you can think of is why is the Bible true or why is the Bible not true? We've, I've thought it through. I've read commentaries. I know uh, I'll give you just a real quick example while we're talking about this is uh, granite looks to be, we'll say, 18 billion years old. And uh, limestone looks, we'll say, 800,000 years old. And then, of course, we have volcanic rock that popped out of the earth two days ago, which is hard. And we know that it's two days old because two days earlier it was lava. Now, we look at these and they have a perception of age. But if God created the world with granite and with limestone... The granite is going to, by nature, look 18 billion years old, even if it didn't exist the day before. And the limestone will look, whatever I said, 100,000 years old, even though it didn't exist the day before. Everything has a perception of age, if you see what I'm saying. The Bible says that God created the trees with the fruit and the seed inside. Well, the tree had to come from another tree. Right? So it has the perception of being a 150-year-old tree that came from another tree that died after living for a thousand years. And trees need organic matter to live in. Well, where does the organic matter come from? It comes from dec decaying trees. So if you think it through, there had to be a point where everything started and everything was already in the mind of God. When he spoke things into existence, they have the perception of age of whatever they are. So Adam had the perception of being a 30-year-old man. So the theory of evolution is a theory. And in 1925, the state of Tennessee adopted that textbook, which denied the theory of evolution. And of course, now if you do that, you're considered a lunatic and you can't promote any other theory without going to jail for crying out loud. One other thing about Tennessee I remembered is that um, I, as I was reading the constitution of the state of Tennessee, they do not allow two type of people to hold public office. And this is still in their constitution today. One of the types of people that is not allowed to hold public office in the state of Tem Tennessee is an atheist. And the reason why is because it says right there, they're morally unqualified to hold public office. And then the second type of person that's not allowed to have public office or hold public office is a minister. And the reason why is because his duties are supposedly, according to the Constitution, higher than any public official's duties. And therefore, they are not to be messed with and brought to a lower position than the high calling they already have. So believe it or not, that's still on the Constitution in the state of Tennessee. In 1948, we had a guy named Chuck Yeager, who was the first person to break the speed of sound in the Bell XS1. Nobody was sure if it was even possible at the time. Not thinking things through clearly back then, 
Uh, they didn't know that when you uh, shot a rifle bullet and you hear that crack, that is actually the rifle bullet breaking the speed of sound. And it didn't disappear all of a sudden, so obviously things can break the speed of sound. All they needed to do was make something aerodynamically safe enough to put a man inside and do it. And that's what they did. Chuck Yeager was being the first person to uh, actually get into that thing and take off and do it. And then in 1967, before I say what happened on this day in 1967, I will say that on 7 June of 1967, which was three days ago, uh, after 2,000 years of not having a capital for their country, which they didn't even have until 1948, Jerusalem was recaptured by the Jewish people, and uh, they uh, uh, went to the old city of Jerusalem, and they stood there at the uh, Temple Mount, and they actually broke down and cried. And it's, it was absolutely silent. There's guns raging in the distance during this battle, but these, these Jewish men, these soldiers that had recaptured the old city just were in a state of awe that God had returned this land to them. As a matter of fact, that's actually recorded. Let me see. Uh, it's in the 126th Psalm. And let's just take a moment and read the words that uh, speak of the uh, coming back of the people to Israel and to Jerusalem. Psalm 126 is from a Psalm of Ascents. It says, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. So I won't finish the whole psalm, but you can see that they had their captivity one time to Babylon and the second time among all the nations of the world. But the Lord faithfully restored them despite their unfaithfulness and then Three days after recapturing Jerusalem on 10 June of 1967, Israel and Syria made a ceasefire to end the Six-Day War. Now, obviously, this was at the behest of Syria, who got stomped during the war. Israel could have gone through and wiped out all of their surrounding nations, but being peaceful people and just wanting to live in peace, they allowed these peace treaties to be signed. They were the victors in 1948. They were the victors in 1967 and again in 1973. And the world doesn't seem to understand that even to this day, that what they won in that war is rightfully theirs. No nation in history is asked to give up what it wins in war except the nation of Israel. All right, here we are today. We're starting in Genesis 13 and we're actually going to do the entire chapter, which is Genesis 13, 1 through 18. And uh, usually I try to break it down in just a couple verses, but I think we can do the whole chapter in a, a reasonable manner. So before I do, though, I want to ask each one of you just to think this through. What does being rich mean to you personally? What is that something that means to you? Today, one of the points that I'm going to talk about in this sermon is just that. If you walk from where we are right now and go up towards the public restrooms, you're going to, on the way, pass all of those nice tropical looking picnic tables with the uh, uh, palm roofs that are by the lagoon. And on the last one of those picnic tables, right where the view of the lagoon is best, is where a guy named Wally lives. He actually lives on a table just about the size of these picnic tables right here, and he has lived there for years. You might have noticed him. I don't know if any of you know Wally, but if you see an old guy with a black hat or a uh, black bandana and he rides his tricycle up and down Siesta Key every single day, that's Wally, and he comes here every night, and he lives on that picnic table. And he enjoys life to the fullest, I can assure you of that. 
while he has almost no possessions at all, and what he does have, he has right in the sides of his tricycle, and he also has a little storage place that he keeps some things at down the road. But while he has a place on the water, he also has a shower that he can take every single day right over here, and he does it, guess what, at your expense, because it's a public shower. And he even gets a paycheck from the military. And so he always has enough for a steak, you know, and then what does he have? He's got one of these grills like we have right here. And so once again, the, the grill is paid for public expense and he just goes out once in a while and has himself a steak. Then he just, he simply loves life. He's very carefree about that. And yet there are hundreds of people within one quarter of a mile of where we are right now who have paid millions of dollars to live where they are and yet they are as absolutely miserable as they can be. Wally doesn't pay a penny for where he lives, and he's as happy as a lark. So the question for each of you to consider is, which one are the wealthy, and which one is the rich? Our text verse for today comes from Luke 1, and I'm gonna read you verses 68 through 75. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is the father of John the Baptist, singing his song of praise at the time of the birth of his son. Uh, this is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Verse 69, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham, which we're going to see repeated for the second time today, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. God made a promise to Abraham. It went down the line to other people who came from Abraham, eventually came to King David. He made these promises and God fulfilled those promises in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. So may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. And that brings us to our first, first thought of the day, which is returning to the promised land. Then Avram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. Now I'm gonna remind you of what we talked about last week. We saw Avram's journey, which went down into Egypt, which occurred because of a famine in the land of Canaan. While they were there, Avram had told his wife to tell anyone that they met that she was his sister. Now he did this in order to protect his own life in case somebody wanted to kill him so that they could have her because she was an extremely beautiful lady. Now one point I didn't make last week but I wanna make right now is that if he had been killed, she would have been abused anyway. So people will try to find fault in Avram for the decision he made but actually what he was doing was protecting both of them not putting one of them at any more risk than they would have otherwise been. Now, while in Egypt, Pharaoh's house eventually took Sarai in so that she would become Pharaoh's wife. But in the process of this, God afflicted them with plagues to keep her from being taken as his wife. And when Pharaoh found out what happened, it said this in that particular passage. And Pharaoh called Avram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here's your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so in this 
first verse that we see today, we see the fulfillment of Pharaoh's demand. Avram and all who were with him headed northeast out of Egypt back to the land of Canaan. Now this verse that I just read said that they went up from Egypt to the south, but that does not mean that they headed south. Instead, they traveled to the south of the land of Canaan, which is an area known as the Negev, which means south. And to give you a comparable explanation so you can get this right, it would be like saying that we traveled from Sarasota, Florida to the deep south, which is actually north of us because Sarasota, Florida is not technically a part of the deep south. In other words, uh, the deep south, I believe, goes as far as Ocala. So here we are in Sarasota and we say we're going to go to the deep south. We actually go north to do that. Because of this, different Bible translations will translate this passage differently. Some will say to the south with a capital S. Some will say to the Negev or whatever. It is a place. It is not a direction. Verse 2, Avram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now, even before he had gone to Egypt, you remember that he was already wealthy and had servants and goods. But while he was in Egypt, his wealth increased even more when Pharaoh took Sarai to be his wife. When he did, he treated Avram very well for his sake, and he made a great deal of a profit off of this deal. Now, the Hebrew word for very rich is kaved me'od, and the words indicate something that is heavy. So, in other words, Avram was heavy in livestock, he was heavy in silver, he was heavy in gold. Now, as people, we generally tend to look at other people who have a lot of stuff or have expensive things as being more important than we are, or, uh, you know, just better than we are, or better at least than people that don't have as much stuff. And we want to be associated with richer, important people more than those who are less so. This is a general tendency of human beings. Very few people escape this. If we ever meet somebody famous, say we meet Clint Eastwood and we have dinner with him sometime, even years later, we are going to tell people, oh, I, I ate with Clint Eastwood one time, as if it elevates us in importance or something. But the Bible does not teach this. If a person is rich or if they are famous, it is no indication of divine favor. And if a person is poor, it is no indication of divine disfavor. And if a person earns a lot of money or they have a lot of fame, it does not guarantee that they have happiness. And often more, more often than not, it means just the opposite in their life. Sports stars, movie stars, they make millions of dollars and yet they are the ones who are continuously going through divorce or they're having all kinds of mental problems. Look at poor Mel Gibson is just struggling through life with all of the money that he has. And eventually many of these people are the ones that put the gun in their mouth and they pull the trigger because life is so crummy. Does anybody here know who Bob Welch is? Bob Welch, just this week, he was one of the people that founded the rock group Fleetwood Mac. And eventually he went into a solo career. You may remember a beautiful song he did called Sentimental Lady. Okay? Or he did another one that was a little spunkier called Ebony Eyes. Well, this past week, Bob Welch, with all of his wealth, and Welch is his name, not wealth, Bob Welch, with all of his wealth and with his uh, big houses and expensive cars, put a gun to his chest and he killed himself. So, as you can see, being wealthy does not guarantee that you are going to be a happy person. The heaviness of wealth, such as Avram had, is something that requires great care or it can become a burden which is way too heavy for us to manage. And the blessing that they 
have in the wealth can actually turn very quickly into a curse. Solomon, who is the richest person ever to live according to the Bible, gives us this particular thought on wealth from the book of Ecclesiastes. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man, I love this verse here, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Any of you who know me, and there's a couple of you here that know me intimately, know that I love to sleep. Outside of Jesus and then my family, sleeping is my very favorite thing to do. If being rich will deprive me of my sleep, then I tell you, I would rather never be wealthy. And if you're over at my house and we're having a, a nice evening together, I know he can tell you this is true. You're still there at eight o'clock. I'm gonna say, have a good time talking to Hidako because I'm going to bed. I, that's it. Nothing is gonna interfere with my sleep. I love to sleep. The labor, the sleep of a laboring man is rich. What was it? Let me read that to you again because it's such a beautiful thought. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. All that wealth, all it does is it just causes our minds turmoil most of the time. And in Luke 16, it says this about the possessions that we prize so highly, like big houses or maybe sports cars or fancy watches. Here's what it says. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him, meaning Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Some of the people that I hold in absolutely the highest regard are people who live very simple lives and who spend a lot of their time doing good things for other people, whether they're friends or whether they're just people that they don't even know. And one of them is here right now. I won't give out her name, but I can tell you that she does so many things for other people. She's always looking out for other people. And I am sure that if she were a very wealthy person, it wouldn't make any difference in the way she conducts her life. I don't know whether she agrees with that or not, but I can assure you that she is blessed because she is a blessing. What more could anyone want at the end of their life than to know that God was pleased with how they live their life, not worrying about wealth and status, but instead doing good things and charity work for other people simply because you have a heart for it. Something that will never impress me is how much money you have or how big the house is that you have or what type of a car you have. These things just don't impress me. I got to tell you what, I clean toilets six mornings a week, every week of my life, down at them all down the road here. I pick up all of the filth that people throw in the parking lot. I take out the garbage and I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm not ashamed by it. I don't mind a bit doing this. If it helps pay the bills and it helps meet the needs of my wife and I, then what more should I ask for? And Avram had been blessed with a great deal. And maybe someday you or I will be blessed in the same way. But what God favors is not a lot of stuff in our lives. What he favors is our faith. That is what God looks for. So please be faithful rather than worrying about where you are going to increase your wealth to the point where you can be comfortable. The people that live in uh, Thailand when I was over there, little children that didn't have any shoes and they hardly had enough clothes to cover their whole body, were the happiest children I've ever seen. And yet you go to the grocery stores and Walmarts of America and all you see are bitter-faced little children that just want more and more. 
Stuff does not bring happiness, despite the fact that we think it does. Verse 3, And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Avram called on the name of the Lord. Now these verses take us back to where we were before in chapter 12, to the place where he had built an altar sometime very soon after coming into the promised land. And if you remember, I said that Bethel, I've said this three sermons ago and I said it last sermon, Bethel means house of God and it is a picture of heaven. And I means a heap of ruins and it is a picture of hell. Avram is living between these two, both physically as a human being and spiritually. And for a second time, he makes the right choice. He calls on the name of the Lord. And while living on earth, between the only two possible destinations that we will ever go to, Avram makes the right choice by setting his eyes and his heart and his affections on the Lord. Despite being a man of very great wealth and power, his eyes are exactly where they should be. They're focused on him. And if we can just learn from people like this, then our lives will be so much better off. All of the money, all of the fame, and all of the, the prestige in the world are not worth doodly squat when we come to the end of our lives. And so if you think about it from that perspective, it doesn't really hold any importance now either. If honoring the Lord is all that matters at the end of our lives, and we don't know what the end moment of our life will be, then honoring him is all that matters at any time. Think about it. Just think it through. If any one of us died right now, tree limb falls on us, or we go out after the sermon, and, or you, you get bored to death in the sermon and you die, whatever. If you die at that moment, and the only thing of true value is your walk with the Lord at that moment, then it is the only thing of true value at any moment, because any moment could be our last moment. It's so simple to see, and yet most people never really figure it out. And that leads us to our second thought today. If you go right, I will go left. Now, when I was young, I heard about a town in America with two cars in it. This was just after automobiles were invented. And there were no real roads except where the horses and buggies went. There were no established uh, road signs or anything like that. And despite this, despite having the entire town and all the surrounding area to drive around in, with only one other car on the road at the time, these two cars had a head-on accident and they were both totaled. Now, that might seem a little bit funny or odd to us, but it's the kind of the same as when you're walking down a... Uh, uh, what do you call it, a sidewalk in America. And you come to somebody and, you know, there's plenty of room on the sidewalk, but you're facing each other and all of a sudden you see you're going to run into each other. So you step to the right and he steps to the left and you're still in front of each other. And then you step to the left and at the same time he steps to the right and you keep doing this back and forth. And that's kind of what happened with these two cars. I'm sure they were driving along and they just, they just didn't know what to do. And so instead they just ran into each other. Another funny example of this is something I saw in the news just a couple weeks ago when I was slipping through the channels there was a guy that was being interviewed and he is one of these people in New York City that has a uh, a job where they give him something that's important it needs to be they can't fax it it has to be taken directly to another office and so he'd go down to the street grab his bike he'd get on his bike and he'd ride to the other office and drop drop this important document off and I don't know if you remember, I think it was called Quicksilver. It was a movie back in the 80s with Kevin Bacon, and it was based on these guys that did this. They would ride their bikes and make deliveries. 
Well, this guy on this newscast said that they asked him, what are some of the things that are difficult about your job? And he said, the one thing that is most difficult is what he called the dance. He'd be driving his bike along, you know, in a rush to make his delivery, and here's somebody coming in a crosswalk. And he said, if that guy on the crosswalk would just stop and look at him and start doing this, the dance, he knew that they were going to have an accident, invariably, because nobody knows where anybody else is going. But if the guy would just stop, then he could go by without any problem, and there would be no accident. Abraham, or Avram, and his nephew Lot are going to face the dance in just a moment, and we're going to see how it turns out. This is verse 5 of chapter 13. Lot also, who went with Avram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Avram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. Now, Avram is not the only one that has flocks and servants and property. Lot, his nephews, got a lot of these things as well. And in fact, together, they have so much stuff between the two of them that living together is no longer an option. Depending on the time of year, if you've been to Israel, you know this. Depending on the time of year where you're at and where you are living, there's often simply not enough to feed all of the livestock. And so this dance is getting ready to begin. Lot and Avram are probably living close to home. They're in their tents, but their servants are out with the flocks in the field. And there's no real division of property at this time in the land. And so whoever gets to a nice spot to graze their flocks first is going to get a claim on that grazing. And suppose they're coming from this direction and, and Lot's uh, herds are coming from this direction. They come to the field at the same time. They're both going to say they got there first, right? As unlikely as this might seem, especially considering that six million people live in the land of Israel today, it is not that tough to imagine. Because first, you move into a land, you actually have to clear the land and make it usable for the animals. That's the first thing that happen, needs to happen. And also, it says right there, the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So these people would have already gone in and they would have cleared land for their own flocks. And so Avram and Lot, being in the minority, would want to stay clear of those areas as well. So you can see how the land is getting smaller. If you've got a lot of possessions and you've got all these people living around you and you've got your nephew Lot with all kinds of stuff, you are going to have a problem. And so now they're going to face this dance. And the question is, will they stand still? Or is one of them going to do the dance and the other guy stand still and let him go by? Or are they both just going to dance and have it out? Being relatives, let's hope that things work out for the best. This is verse 8. So Avram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Avram graciously stands fast, and he calms this situation by deferring the decision to his nephew Lot. He is the head of the clan, though, because he is the son of Terah. But this is a good indication of something that I said about five or six or even seven sermons ago. Lot was probably older than his uncle Avram. Avram's older brother Haran was 60 years older than Lot was. And so that means, I'm sorry, Avram's older brother Haran was 60 years older than Avram was. And so that means Lot is probably also older than Avram as well. It's a good assumption. 
So even though he is Lot's uncle, he's probably younger than him. And so despite being the head of this clan, he shows respect to the elder family member by offering the choice of resolving the matter. If Lot goes to the left, Avram says he'll go to the right. If Lot goes to the right, then Avram says, I'll go to the left. In these verses right here, we can apply several things to our own lives. The first is that there is an order, and this goes through every culture I've ever gone to in the world. There's an order of deferring to others, and we need to learn that order, and we need to pay attention to it. Unfortunately, you often see people that have no tact at all, and they have no idea how to defer at all. But there is an order that we should pay attention to. In the Bible, we're taught to provide respect and obedience to people in various ways. We're taught to respect our parents. That's obviously the fifth commandment. That's one of the things that we are mandated to do. And yes, it's repeated in the New Testament, so we don't just drop it by the wayside saying the law is set aside in Christ. Paul says it in the New Testament. Honor and respect your parents. We're also to show respect to those who are older than us. Now, even though this is under the law, it does say in the book of Leviticus that a person should rise in the presence of the silver-haired, okay? In other words, somebody that is older than you simply deserves respect just because they're older than you. They've got more wisdom than you, they've got more years behind you, and they're probably more frail than you. So you defer to them in matters and show respect to them. And then we are also to show respect for people in authority. Paul says this in the book of Romans, but it is a principle that is found throughout the entire Bible. And Paul says even in the book of Philippians, listen to what he says here, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And how did Jesus say it himself? He said, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Avram may have been the head of this family because of his birth position, but he understood that sometimes deferring to others is the wisest choice and the one which will bring about peace. Another thing that we can learn right from these verses is what Avram said, we are brothers or we are brethren, we are kinsmen. If you look at your dealings with others in this light, then in fact every single person on the face of the earth is your kinsman because we all have one father in Adam and we all have one father in Noah. When we lift ourselves above another person, we are really only showing contempt for God who created each one of us. And this is certainly why Paul told us to act in lowliness of mind and to esteem others better than ourselves. I know it's not easy, but it is always right. And finally, we can look back to what God had already promised to Avram. He said to him, to your descendants, I will give this land. They, his descendants, will possess the land. So why should he worry about whatever decision Lot makes? It's irrelevant. Whatever he decides is not going to affect what God has already determined. And this is true for each one of us. Because God is already, if you are a Christian and having called on the name of Jesus Christ, he has promised us that he will give us salvation, the moment we call on him, he seals with us with the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, he said that he is going away to build us a home. And we have an eternal residence that is waiting for us. So we don't need to worry about petty differences between other people when the promise is already made. Just as Avram knew that the land would be his, 
every one of us who has accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has a better promise. We have a promise of glory that will never fade away. So why should we strive with other people about temporary things that have absolutely no importance at all? But strive we do. I know we do. Well, let's go on to verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go toward Soar. Then Lot chose for himself all of the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Lot probably didn't take long in making this decision. He looked down at the plain of the Jordan, where the land was lush, and it was well watered. Unlike other areas in the land, which I talked about a moment ago, they're dependent on the rain cycles for anything that uh, will cause crops to grow down in the plain of the Jordan. You got the Jordan flowing down there all year long and it's taking in the nutrients and the water. And so it's a much more secure decision for him to make. And this would be especially true during the flooding season because just like the Nile River in Egypt, it carried a lot more nutrients down and there would be an abundance of water. And Lot would have seen this because he was there in Egypt just recently with Avram. So instead of worrying about famines, which sent them to Egypt in the first place, it would be a much better choice for having grass and crops, even if there was no rain for a while. Kind of an interesting thought about this verse, and one which I am pretty certain is correct. Some scholars have taken the words, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, which in Hebrew are kegan Yehovah ke'eretz Mitzrayim, not as two comparisons, but as one. In other words, this is the spot where the garden of the Lord was, and the land of Egypt is being compared to it. Now, we have a Hebrew scholar on our staff at Church on the Beach, and I checked with him to see if this was actually a verifiable translation, and sure enough, he said, based on other precedents in the Bible, this is possible. So let's stand back and think about this for just a second. Adam was created, and then after he was created, he was placed in the Garden of Eden. When he disobeyed, he was sent out east of Eden, and Cain traveled further east to the land of Nod, which is the land of wandering. After the flood, the same area that Cain went to is the area where Nimrod went to. And guess what? That's where the Tower of Babel was. But God called Avram back to the place where the Garden of Eden was, and the same land where God's presence dwelt during the Temple times. So you see, it's like a circle of what God is doing here. And it is the same place where Jesus Christ, God incarnate, walked among his people, just as God walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And it is the same place which will look very similar to the description we're reading about the Jordan Valley in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. In other words, right now, if you go there, it is the driest, most barren spot on the face of the earth. It's where the Dead Sea is in nothing grows there. But at one time in history, it was a well-watered plain. And again, in history, it is going to have fishing. It will have life there. And that is described, believe it or not, in Ezekiel chapter 47. And this is something that has never been fulfilled to this day in human history. And so it must be a point in the future. We call that the millennial reign of Christ. We have the rapture, we've got a seven year tribulation period, and then we've got this glorious age where Christ rules from Jerusalem. And I'm gonna read you the verses right now so you can see what it will be like again. This is from Ezekiel chapter 47. Then he, meaning an angel or a messenger of God, 
took Ezekiel. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from right under the side of the temple south of the altar. Explain that right now is that there has never been a time in recorded history where water was coming from under the altar of the temple. And so this certainly is something that is coming in the future. He brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured off 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the waters. They came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 cubits and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there, along the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and on the other. Then he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because the, these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live there wherever the river goes. Now, if you go there today to the Dead Sea, and I think, Sergio, you've been there, haven't you? If you get one drop of Dead Sea water in your eye, it is just like having acid in your eye. It is absolutely painful. If you go out into that water there, that is about 8% solids. If you go to the Dead Sea, it's about 26% solids. It's so buoyant because of the solids in the water that if you go out and you're this deep and you pick up your legs, you won't bob down one inch. You can lay on top of it as if you're laying on a board. It is incredible how bad this water is. For, it doesn't sustain any life except for those little microorganisms that can live in anything. But he is saying that this water from this temple is going to flow down into this valley in the same place because it's east, just like where uh, Lot was before, headed east. It's going to take this Dead Sea and it's going to make it livable for fish once again. We'll go on, it says here, there will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen, there's going to be fish and fishermen in this completely dead spot. They will stand by it from En Gedi to En Eglaim. There will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their waters flow from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. And even today, before this time comes, we can see the Dead Sea it's starting to evaporate and it's actually turning into two separate seas. If you look at it from a, uh, uh, what do you call it, a, uh, you know, one of those satellites, get the image of it, you can see how it's starting to separate. And it's exactly the way the Bible says, the south will be left for salt. So this is coming. This is coming soon. And the land of Israel is where all things started. And it is the place where all things are going to find their completion. So no wonder the whole world has continued to this day to covet this land and to come against the people of Israel. 
right where the Lord will dwell. That's why these things are happening is because it is his land and those are his people and they want to rile against the Lord and against his purposes for the people of Israel. Verse 12, Avram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So we're going to get back to our story. It was kind of interesting insert and I wanted you to see how things were and how things will be again. But unfortunately for Lot, he didn't pay attention to the lessons of the past where mixing with the ungodly was exactly what led to the flood of Noah. And at this time, he did not have the words of Paul. Now I want you to know, we all have the words of Paul too, every person out here, and yet nobody seems to take the advice. Paul said, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now in the chapters ahead, we're going to see where Lot's wrong choices of moving into the land of Sodom would leave him in very, very sad straits and which would even cost him the life of his own wife. Again, we have a very valuable lesson for each of us in these verses. We're told by James in the 59th book of the Bible, the book of James, right towards the end of the Bible, it says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That means fighting with God. Who therefore, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now Lot moved to Sodom and he dwelt among those who worked in wickedness. He did maintain his own righteousness, and we know this from the New Testament, but it affected his life, it affected his family, it affected, it cost his wife her life at some point. And that is the exact same thing that will happen when we live in this manner. In the end, Lot thought that he was gonna find heaven, but instead he only found hell. And that is what we will find when we make the same bad decisions and we live too closely to the world and not fellowship enough with other believers. We all have choices to make and ultimately this type of thing that happens in our life is brought about by our own decisions. Our own sad state of affairs normally belong to the person that you look at in the mirror. And this goes for me. I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody here. I go look in the mirror and I say, every bad thing that happened to me this week is a direct result of my bad decisions. So keep those things in mind. And that brings us to our third thought. Read your Bible more than once. It's our final thought for today, and I'm going to tie in your responsibility as a Christian in a way which I hope will convict you of the thing you need to do in order to keep from making the same mistakes as Lot made and so many other prominent figures in the Bible. You might know, I've said this, I think last week, I've said it during several sermons, that I traveled all around America to all 50 states. I drove to 48 of them, I flew to two of them, and preached at all 50 capitals. The main purpose for that, though, was to get people interested in reading their Bibles. I made a challenge. The people at a Grace Baptist Church, the people on the internet, the people that I knew personally, I said, if you will read your Bible for 30 minutes a day while I am out doing this, you will have your Bible read by the time I get back, it'll be very close. And God would give you a similar challenge. And I gotta tell you, it is found in the verses I'm about to read you right here. Start with verse 14. Then the Lord said to Avram, after Lot had separated from him, lift now your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see, I give to you and to your descendants forever. In chapter 12, we read this. Avram passed through the land, to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. 
and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Avram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God has now twice promised the land to Avram. The Lord is repeating his word to remind him about what he had already been told. So let me ask you a question. You don't need to raise your hand if you want to go ahead, but has anybody here ever read the book of Philippians? Has anybody here read the book of Philippians more than once? Anybody? Okay, you've read it. Can you quote Philippians 4, 6, and 7 to me? Okay, let me give you the first four words of it and then I know that'll spur your memory and you'll be able to do it. Be anxious for nothing. Can you finish those verses? No. Don't worry, I couldn't either. And I've probably read it 50 or 60 times. I have no idea how many times I've read Philippians, but I couldn't do that. All right, I'm going to read it to you. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Why did God remind Avram of the promise? Because he wanted him to remember it. Why should we read our Bible more than once, more than twice, and in fact, read it every single day of our life? It's so that we can remember it. If I've read it as many times as I've read it, and I couldn't tell you those verses, how many times do we need to read it to get it through our thick skulls? And I'm talking directly to Charlie Garrett with that one. In fact, long before Jesus came, when the people of Israel had only the law of Moses, there were only five books that they were required to know. God said this to them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command to you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. At a time when there were only five books in the entire Bible, God asked them to meditate on it day and night and during every activity that they were engaged in. How much more should we be meditating on God's word now that we have 61 more books than they had? There are 66 books in the Bible and we should be meditating on it every single day of our life, writing out on our walls. That's one thing I'll tell you right now, just came to mind, is that when I do mission work every Saturday morning and these people just moved, Miss Rose died about a month and a half ago, but we would go in and visit her every single week and written right on the wall of her home were Bible verses. And I thought that's exactly what God asked them to do. And we should be doing this. I know somebody has got a little pickup truck out here and it's got Bible and prayers all over it. And then I know mine has Bible all over it too. This is what we're asked to do, is to just remember the Lord's word all the time. There were only five books in the Bible, and he's asking them to do this. How much more? How much more should we be doing this? The Bible tells us about Jesus. Jesus tells us about the unseen Father. I know I say it every sermon, and I'm going to say it every sermon as long as I live, but the only way to know God intimately is to know his word. If you're relying on the Holy Spirit to reveal God to you, guess what? He already has. He breathed this out to us. This is the Holy Spirit's word to us. We're not going to get it by sitting in a church and rolling around in the aisles. We're not going to get more of God that way. This is how we're going to get more of God, is through this precious word that he has given us through his Holy Spirit. Verse 16, And I will make your descendants as of the dust of the earth, 
so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, through its length and width, for I give it to you. There are two things going on in this particular promise right here to Avram. The first is that the land is being given to him and to his descendants, and the second is that his descendants will be like the dust of the earth in number. These two promises are connected, but they are different. The promise of the land is to his physical descendants, and it is a physical promise, not a spiritual one. It is given to Abraham and to his sons and not to the church. And this has become evident both in the Bible, if you read the entire Bible, it ought to be evident, but it has also become evident in human history. When Israel was exiled from the land, people didn't just move in, the church didn't move in and take over the land, that land laid fallow. And then when Israel moved back in, the land became usable again. The land promise which is made to Avram is reiterated to his son Isaac, and it's reiterated to his son Jacob. We are not, other than one person here at Church on the Beach, we are not physical descendants of Isaac or Jacob. On the other hand, the promise of a multitude of descendants is a promise concerning people, all people, of faith in the work of Jesus Christ. This is not a physical right, but it is a spiritual right. And the Bible confirms this precept as well. It's in the book of Romans and also in the book of Galatians. It is through faith that one becomes a descendant of Abraham. In the book of Romans, Paul says this, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Avram or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. To be an heir of the land, one is born physically into the people of Israel. But to be an heir of the promises of God which lead to eternal life, one must be born spiritually through faith, and that is from the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to people who have called on him. Verse 18, then Avram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. This brings us to the last verse of chapter 13. Avram walked throughout the length and the breadth of the land and eventually pitched his tent by the terebinth trees of Mamre at the ancient city of Hebron. Hebron exists even to this day, and yes, it is the spot where Abraham's tomb is. We know where it is even to this day, and many people go and you know, the Muslims claim him as their father, the Jews claim him as their father, but yes, we know exactly where Avram's uh, tomb is, even to this day. In this area, he built an altar. This altar is a place in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, we know it is a place of sacrifice. Avram is the patriarch, or the first father of the family, and so the responsibility for sacrificing belongs to him. This is going to continue right up until the time of Moses. And at that time, corporate sacrifices for the people of Israel are gonna be instituted under the clan of the Levites. As God directs the nations and the people of the earth, his purposes are being worked out for all of us. Avram sacrificed to the Lord in anticipation of the coming Redeemer. Since Christ came, the sacrifices are done. We now have his cross as our point of meeting with the Creator. So let me explain to you how Jesus' life and how his death are significant to you. Just in case somebody's listening and they've never heard the simple gospel, the Bible says that Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. He never sinned like we all have. We inherited Adam's sin and we commit our own sins on our own. He never did that. And then what he did is he gave up his life as an exchange 
for ours if we are willing to accept that. He went to the cross of Calvary and he was that sacrifice that Avram was looking forward to and that the Levites were looking forward to. His life became the atoning sacrifice for the people of the world. And all we need to do is to say, I cannot save myself. And I understand that what happened at the cross of Calvary happened because of my sin. And I am willing to make an exchange with God through the person of Jesus Christ, his righteousness for my unrighteousness. And if you simply do that one thing, you call on the name of the Lord, then you will be saved. That's all we need to do in order to be reconciled to God the Father, is to understand that Christ died for our sins. I got a poem to read you and then we'll be done for the day. This is called The Lord's Promise to Avram. Avram went up from Egypt with all that he had and his nephew Lot was with him too. From the land of Egypt, many good things they did add and they came to the south and kept on passing through. And he journeyed to Bethel where his tent had been before to the place of the altar between Bethel and Ai. And there he called on the Lord, a duty he wouldn't ignore. Avram was a man of faith and he was a faithful guy. Lot was with him and he had flocks, herds, and tents, and the land couldn't support them both. They had so much stuff. And so fighting resulted, some very trying events. They realized the land where they were just wasn't enough. The Canaanites and Perizzites, they dwelt in the land. Avram had to tread carefully to avoid their fighting hand. Then Avram said to Lot, let us not live in strife, and between our herdsmen let there be peace. For we are brethren, let us protect each other's life. Let us separate so this fighting will cease. The whole land is before you, is it not? Please separate from me, my handsome nephew Lot. If you take the left, why then I'll go to the right. If you take the right, then to the left I will go. Come nephew, let this not result in a fight. Let us part amicably, let it be so. Lot lifted his eyes and favored the Jordan's plain, the beautiful spot, the garden of the Lord. It was like the land of Egypt that didn't need the rain. It was watered from the river, when he saw it, he was floored. And so they separated from each other. To the east went Lot, and Avram dwelt in Canaan. He really loved the spot. And the Lord said to Avram, after Lot separated from him, lift now your eyes north, south, east, and west. This land I give to you forever. You will fill it to the brim. As the dust of the earth, they will be. See how you are blessed? If a man could number the earth's dust, then your descendants could also be counted too. This is a sure promise, one you can trust. It is a vow from your creator to you. Arise and walk through the land, up and down and side to side. I'm giving to you everything that you have eyed. And so Avram moved his tent to the place of Mamre's trees. They are in Hebron, which is still there today. And he built an altar to the Lord, an offering to please. And there in Hebron is where he did stay. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to meet out here in peace and without the trials and troubles that people of the rest of the world have. And we may face those troubles at some point in the future, but as it stands right now, you have given us a wonderful spot to meet out on the beach. And we thank you for that. I pray for each person that's here today and anybody that's watching on video that you will bless them and just take care of them in the week ahead. And in all things, help us to remember to have your word in our heart and on our doorposts and on the walls of our houses and to remember it each and every moment of the day. Help us to focus on you and not to forget that you gave us your word so that we can understand who you are and your great heart and love for the people of the world. We praise you, we honor you, we give you thanks and glory in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.